Good morning. What's up, everybody? Thank you. Thank you. I have to, can I just tell, confession is good for the soul. And I just need to confess. So, well, by the way, my name is Ryan. If you're new, uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And I just, I need to confess something. I'm learning about our church that I have to prepare my heart for better. Is that um, what I've learned today is that we have a lot of men in our church that have beautiful hair. And I have spent the morning lusting after some of you and your hair, particularly Rollin in the back there and uh, others, that you come in with these beautiful heads of hair that it's hard for me. It is. I used to have that hair. There's pictures out there. I had this mane, this flowing mane, and I don't now. So way to be a stumbling block for me, guys, in the room. So I just had to say that. I had to get that off my chest. So it's good to see everybody. We've been having some microphone problems today. So if I start snap, crackling, popping a little bit, you might see me switch over to a handheld, handheld mic. <laughs> it's so funny. Like we did this, the other service. So we'll give it a second, see what happens here. Who knows? You know, it's, I think it's the combination of you. So uh, that's good. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to switch, okay? So we don't even, we, we just move forward in life here. Okay. How's that? Good? All right. Now I feel like a stand-up comedian, so there's going to be more jokes today. Can't promise they'll be funny, but hey, you know. So listen, uh, we're in a series called The Spirituality of Happiness, and like I mentioned, my name is Ryan, the lead pastor. If you're a guest today, thank you for being here on Memorial Day weekend. Good for you. Double bonus points, less time in purgatory for you. That is well done, well done going to church on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, one of the worst attended Sundays all around the nation. So it's good to have everybody. We're in week three of this series, and uh, we're exploring what does it mean to be happy people. And I know that that can kind of come across as a little scary at times because there is such a thing as toxic positivity. And uh, those are people we basically want to punch in the teeth. Uh, we, we understand that. There, it's really hard when you have people that aren't willing to sit with you in the present moment of pain you might be experiencing. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what does it mean to kind of live out the spirituality of happiness. And our anchor verse comes from Psalms. It says, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of the sinners that the sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, they meditate day and night. And we talked about the law of the Lord, right, really being fulfilled in Jesus. And so it's not something that weighs us down. We're not trying to figure out every little rule to follow, but we're trying to, to see what does it mean to kind of live into this Jesus way, and how does that relate to this idea of happiness? And the first week, if you haven't uh, been able to listen to them, or if you've boycotted them, whichever, I, I totally understand. Uh, the first week, we talked about how science and Scripture reveal a spirituality of happiness. And so we're actually going to be looking at these two uh, combination of things, that there has been a lot of work done on the spirituality of happiness. Nope, I prefer it in my right hand. That was weird. Sorry. Did you see me do that? I tried to do the nonchalant switch to the mic. Like, this feels weird holding it in my, so I got to move it. I keep, sorry. I don't usually hold this thing. Okay. So uh, <laughs> this is going to be the worst message ever because all I can think about is this microphone in my hand. All right. <laughs> I talk with my hands. It's going to be really hard. 
So it says science and scripture. So throughout this series, we're going to be looking at some of the science and how scripture talks about that. And, and I said, I want to be bilingual or trilingual in this world. That in church and religion and theology, we kind of use one set of vocabulary. And in science, we use another. And in history, we use another. And the social sciences. But what is real is real. And what is true is true. And we talk about these things in different words. And I think we've actually spent a lot of time in Christianity and in the religious world fighting against just other ways of talking about the same thing. And so that's kind of what we're doing, exploring. And last week, Pastor Katie Martinez, she shared about this hallmark, this first hallmark of happy people of divine connection. And the science reveals that people who score high in a happiness quotient in their life, there's all kinds of data, that they connect themselves to the divine. They think about life in bigger terms than their own world, right? And that's a very powerful thing. And so this week, I want to talk a little bit about the power of attitude. Attitude. How many of y'all have ever had an attitude? How many of y'all have been married to somebody with an attitude? Let's ask that question. It's a little, a little easier to say that. The only, safe, the only person who's safe to answer that question is if you've been married more than once. And you can raise, no, I'm not talking about you, honey. You know who I'm talking about, right? Right, that's the only safe person who can raise their hand at that question in church, right? So I want to talk about attitude, right? We've all said it to our kids. We've said it to other people's kids. You need an attitude adjustment. Maybe you haven't said it to other people's kids. You've just thought it, Right? Uh, we know it in ourselves, right? We can experience it. We have something going on in life and we go, oh, I got to get my head out of this. I got to, I got to change my attitude. We, we've heard that phrase, uh, your attitude determines your altitude, right? Altitude. Uh, no, you haven't heard it, obviously. Sorry. Okay. It's a new one for you. Your attitude determines your altitude. Uh, get that one tattooed on you. That's a good one, all right? Your attitude determines your altitude. There's a guy named Viktor Frankl you might have heard of. He was an author, a uh, psychiatrist. Uh, he's Austrian. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a neurologist, uh, and he was a Holocaust survivor. And uh, he passed away in 1997, but had deep impact in the world. In 1942, just nine months after he married his first, uh, after he married his wife, uh, he and his entire family were sent to a concentration camp. And uh, in that concentration camp, his father uh, died of starvation and pneumonia. And then two years later, uh, he and his wife and the surviving members of his family were all transferred to Auschwitz. And there, his mother and his brother, uh, they were gassed. And later his wife would die. And Franklin himself would spend uh, three years in four different concentration camps. And this is what he said. He said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Now, you got to think about who's saying that. Like, that's not Ryan, whose life has been pretty easy I mean, I grew up as a majority member of the culture in which I grew up in, grew up in a middle-class family. I certainly had bumps along the way, but you could hardly call anything that I've gone through in my life as suffering in the thought and the idea. So, so I could say to you, well, you can determine your attitude. And you're like, yeah, like come to me after, come to me after. But when somebody who's walked through the pain and the suffering that Viktor Frankl had, you kind of perk up your ears and you listen. When somebody's willing and able to say, your attitude is your choice and is the greatest freedom. It's the last freedom you have no matter what circumstance you're in. So let me ask you this question. We can have an attitude about a lot of things, right? We can have an attitude about our spouse. We can have an attitude about our former spouse. We can have an attitude about our children, about our parents. We can have an attitude about our work. We can have an attitude about our pastor. I finally get an amen out of John for that one. A year and a half, that's what it takes, right? 
We can have attitude about all different kinds of things, but I want to particularly talk about our attitude towards three things today, and we're going to go kind of quickly. Uh, uh, that's a lie. We probably won't go as quick as we should, but what's your attitude towards the past? What's your attitude towards the present? And what's your attitude towards the future? That's what I want to ask today, because the science is telling us that our attitude towards the past, the present, and the future are key and, and hallmarks towards happy people. And here's what I'd like to say is that we remember the past, and we experience the present, and we embrace the future on a spectrum, right? You know what a spectrum is? Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a talk note person, this would be a great time. Draw a big line somewhere on your page. Like, draw it through something you disagree with. That might be the first place, right? Just draw a big line through it. Put two arrows on either side, and you have a spectrum, right? It's like this, yellow and orange. We experience the past, the present, and the future on a spectrum of emotions, right? And I would suggest that, like, the worst, I'm going to suggest the, the, I would say not worst, that's a terrible word, but, like, the most negative and then the most positive way we can experience these three things. So our past, right? The spectrum of the past we'll call the gratitude spectrum. And the most negative way we can experience the past is to is useless, right? So put on one side, useless, okay? This is where I wish I didn't have a microphone in this hand so I could do this, all right? So on one side is useless. On the other side is redemptive. So we look at the past and we remember it from a lens of at its most negative core, useless, meaningless. And at its most positive, redemptive. And I would say that gratitude then is this idea that how do we remember the past with redemptive hearts? That how do we develop a disposition to think about the past, no matter what experience we've been in, but bend our hearts towards redemption, bend our hearts towards the, the faith and the belief that there is a redemptive quality that takes place in the world and in the universe and hidden in Christ in all of our experiences. Now, let's talk about the present. So, you have this present spectrum. We'll call that the mindfulness spectrum. And in the most negative way we could perceive the present, I would say, is to pretend that the present doesn't exist. And the most positive way on the other side of the spectrum would be honesty, to live in the reality of the moment, to fully be present. When you think about it, even if I'm having a conversation with you, right? If I decide to sit down and, and, and Wendy starts talking to me and we're having a conversation, but I'm like zoned out, I'm not in the moment, I'm really, in a sense, pretending to be there. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Are you listening to me? Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Can I hit you in the face? Uh-huh, uh-huh, right? That's never happened. Uh, no, it never happened, right? So, but we do that. So we pretend to be in the moment. We pretend when we're in difficult circumstances. Hey, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. Meanwhile, life is falling apart. We're dealing with grief, tragedy, loss, whatever it might be. We pretend. But then on the most positive way is just to be honest with the present, to hold our reality with sincerity and authenticity, and to say that I don't necessarily owe anybody an explanation. They might say, how am I doing? I can say, you know, I'm not doing too well today. Oh, well, what's going on? Well, nothing. I just really appreciate you asking. You know, I don't really feel like going into it. But we hold that in the present moment authentically, right? And so let's call mindfulness, right, that ability to be in the moment, is how do we experience the present with honest hearts? How do we give ourselves the permission, the grace to just be in the moment? That you might be here today out of habit, and it's the last place you want to be. And I want to honor that reality and say, that's cool. Let's not pretend to be. And you might be here for some other reason, but let's be in this moment and let's create the atmosphere, the energy that says that's okay. The best thing we could do is be honest about that. 
right? The best thing we can do is, is honor the reality that I'm in. Now, let's talk about the future, right? How do we experience, embrace, think about the future? Let's call this the optimism spectrum, right? The optimism spectrum. And the most negative side, the most negative way we can think about the future would be fatalistic, like fatalism, that we just go, eh, you know, it's going to happen. It's probably going to be bad, whatever it might be. I've got a job interview tomorrow. I'm not going to get it. I don't even know why I bother, right? My other, you know, my, my, my relationship ended. It fell apart. They were not trustworthy. So why even bother? I'll never find love again. I'll never be able to experience it, right? Why would I, you know, the last time I shared with somebody the truth of who I am and what I've been through, they rejected me. So why would I ever share that again, right? So there's kind of this fatalistic. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, the most, I think the most uh, promising way that we can see it would be hope. We could hope against all odds at times, right? So we could talk about optimism as how do we embrace the future with hope-filled hearts. Like, that's what optimism says. So if I hold all these three in tension, I don't have to have fatalistic positivity. I don't have to say, well, I have to pretend like everything's good in the future, and that's how I'm optimistic. No, I can hold the honesty of my moment, but I can have a hope-filled heart for the future because I know the past has been redeemed. So there's that balance. Now, here's the thing. Science, all the research is telling us that people who score high on a happiness quotient, they treasure these things. They treasure gratitude, mindfulness, and optimism. They treasure gratitude, mindfulness, and optimism. Now, so I said I want to be bilingual. So how would, like, what are the Bible, theology, church, God words for this, right? So I would say, like, the idea of gratitude. Certainly, we could say the Bible word for gratitude is gratitude. That's all in there. But I would, I would think like a bigger word for it would be praise, right? So, we sang this song like praise the Father, praise the Son, right? That when we hear this word praise, it's about gratitude. It's about lifting our voices. It's singing. It's recognized. It's honoring the past. It's, and, and really, that's all we can do, right? We can, we can only honor and praise the past. It's really hard to praise the future, right, until that's lived out. So I would say, like, to be mindful of and to be, think, to, to be present in the past, right? If I could have this experience as I, I think there's a redemptive quality to it, that's the power of praise. I think to be the, the idea of being mindful in the moment, that maybe the good Bible theological word for that is rest, is rest. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary. He doesn't say, you know, don't, don't be weary. Like, that's a lie. That's a lie. You got to speak to your, got to speak to your world Got to cast out that lie. You're not weary. You're not tired. No, 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 no. Speak to your bank account. Be filled, right? No, that's not what... No, some of you are like, ooh, I, I go to that church? Great, right? No, like, but Jesus says, come to me in your reality, and you'll find rest. Rest. I think the idea of the Sabbath rest is about being present and being honest with who I am in relationship to the universe, right? There's rest. And then I think the Bible word for um, hope-filled hearts, the Bible word for optimism is hope. It's hope. It's just living in hope. Now, here's the big question. How in the world, how in the world do we treasure these things? How is it even possible to treasure optimism, mindfulness, gratitude? How is it possible to praise? How is it possible to have rest? How is it possible to have hope in a wound-filled world? How do we do that? Now, if you're kind of a Bible person, a church person, you've been around God and faith, particularly the evangelical tradition for a long time, or you've been around me, when you hear me say the word wound, like inside your mind should be going, ding, 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 that's his word for sin. 
So if you want me to use the word sin, there you go, right? But I think the idea here is we live in a world filled with wounds. And, and that, that wound happens when I disconnect myself from who you are in Christ, who I am in Christ, the whole world hidden in Christ. Like when I start to function on my own, when I start to not imagine that my actions matter, and then I create wounds, and you create wounds. I hate to break the news to you. You've wounded people. You didn't even know it. Some of you did know. Some of you worked really hard at, planned it well, executed perfectly. Good job. <laughs> We've just, we do it. And so how do we do that? Well, here's what my, my thesis, my, my statement is, is, I think the key to all of this, to these emotions, to, to optimism, I think to the redemptive heart towards the past, honesty in the present moment, I think it all begins with remembering well. We have to learn to remember well. And I want to look at five rocks in Scripture super fast, and I'm going to go super, super fast. I want to look at five rocks in Scripture that can teach us the wisdom of remembering, because this was huge. Because you see, what would happen is people would walk around in antiquity, and they would see these big piles of rocks, and they go, what's that all about? And sometimes they'd make stories up. They'd take stories from their past, their history, and they'd assign it to that pile of rocks. So every time you walked by it, it was a remembrance of it. It was teaching you something about life and God. And, and when you walked everywhere, you had time to have a conversation. So you'd see this pile of rocks, and every time you'd walk by it, you'd go, oh, that, that reminds me of the story of. That reminds me of the story of. And I'd like to talk about some rocks that we see in Scripture and how they can help us remember, all right? So if you're new to the whole Bible study thing, uh, new to Crossroads, let me just share with you my heart about Scripture very quickly. Uh, I believe, and I think our church would agree, that we hold a conviction that, that, the, that the Bible is a, a collection of sacred writings to the Christian that these are extremely valuable. They are foundational to us and in, in the way in which we understand and, and experience God in Jesus. And we value them tremendously. Uh, I, I think of Scripture as sacred. I think of Scripture as inspired in a mysterious way. Uh, but I don't think of Scripture as a rule book. So I will rarely look for rules in the Bible because there are some bad ones in there. <laughs> There are ones that just don't make sense. You'll even see today as I go through these. But I see this as a sacred collection of writings that if we're, if we're honest with it, can really be transformative because it gives us the struggle. Like these people are not exempt from struggling and trying to figure out God at work in their world. And, and we see something beautiful in this literature. And so if you've been a part of a tradition or if you're here and you're really afraid that, oh, now they're going to talk about the Bible and make me feel really bad, I, that, that's not the heartbeat of our church, it's not my heartbeat at all, is that we would find wisdom to live out the, the big ethic of love. Love. That, that seems to me the greatest use of Scripture. Whenever we use Scripture otherwise, when we use it to condemn, when we use it to control, we've, we're, we're being anti-Christ. We're being actually anti what God would have us use it for. So hopefully that's a little helpful to you. Maybe you'll breathe a little bit. <laughs> you know, I said we're going to look at the Bible and your heart starts palpitating. You know, uh, So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look real quickly. So Book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, is a story about a guy named Jacob. Now, Jacob, if you don't know the story, I can't give you the whole background, but uh, here's the deal. Jacob uh, is on his way to go find a bride, all right? Now, to find a bride, Jacob's father has sent him to go find a close relative. <laughs> the Bible's not a rule book, okay? We no longer go to our cousins, all right? That's just not something we encourage, okay? Science has told us there's a problem with that. Uh, all kinds of things, okay? But basically, Jacob's dad is like, whatever you do, don't marry one of these women. Go find a relative, right? 
not exactly the advice most dads give their kids these days, okay? So when we say the Bible's ancient, this is a great example of it, right? We got to be careful, okay? But that's what's going on in this story, all right? The point of the story is to tell us how to find a spouse, okay? So Jacob is on this journey. He's all by himself. Probably a new phenomenon for him. Jacob loves his mom, and his mom loves him. And so he's being sent out, and he's going to try and find this bride. So he's on a journey all by himself. He lays down on this journey, picks up a rock, puts his head on it, and has a dream. And he dreams of this stairway, and there's angels up and down and up and down. I don't think we're to take this, this vision as literal. Like, metaphors create vision. I don't know if you know that or not. Metaphors create visions, and that's how God works. Like, we, we experience God in ways that we understand, and it's a beautiful grace, right? And so in the ancient world, the way in which Jacob would have thought about God and God's like it creates, that metaphor creates visions and realities, and that's wonderful. So he sees this vision, right? And he's laying down on this beautiful, like, pillow rest. Like, what's the famous pillow guy who's in all kinds of trouble every now and then? The My pillow top? I don't know, whatever it is. I just always see, like, articles about him. Like, I don't know. So Jacob wakes. I'm not going very fast, am I, with those little interjections? Right? Like, I thought we were going fast, right? You're tapping your clock. Right. So the Bible says Jacob wakes up, right? And he says, truly, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. That's the key. Truly, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome this place is. This is nothing else but the house of God, the gateway of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up as a sacred pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. And he named that place Bethel, which literally means house of God. And then the former name of the town was Lutz. So he, like, renames the town. And this story answers all kinds of questions, right? You see this big rock, you're walking by it. They're like, well, what's that all about? Oh, our ancestor Jacob, right? And, and who knows, like, what other people groups told stories about that rock, too. I mean, that's what's cool about it, in my mind, and whatever. But so they tell the story. You would see it, and it would be a reminder. And so Jacob used this stone. The, the writer of Genesis used this stone to teach us something, to teach us to remember God's presence, to teach us to remember God's presence. What a beautiful story, right? So that's one thing we ought to remember well, is remember God's presence. I love it says, surely God was here and I didn't know it. Y'all have had those moments. Y'all have had those moments. Second rock, Joshua. Probably, really, truly, if we're honest with the Bible, Josh, the book of Joshua is one of the most frightening books in the Bible because of its ethic of of ethnic cleansing that was taking place at this time, the call to go out and destroy and take land from people. It's been used uh, in a lot of really negative ways. And so I just want to honor that reality as I talk about this story because I don't, again, I think that there's beauty in understanding. We all interpret our lives and we experience God and we try to make sense of our events. And in Jesus, we recognize, no, 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 no. That's not how God functions. And so Joshua's on this journey, and Joshua is facing this new challenge that he's in leadership. He's the guy in charge. So Moses, if you saw the video, the movie, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but he leads the people out of uh, Egypt. There's the plagues, the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, the whole deal, right? And, and all of a sudden, Moses leads them, and he's the leader for 40 years. He's the guy. And then Moses is gone. And Joshua chapter 1 says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now get up and go and lead these people. And Joshua's like, I don't think so, God. And it's like classic call narrative that we see. And, Joseph, and, and, and excuse me, Joshua's super afraid. Like five times in Joshua 1, it says, do not be afraid for the Lord your God is with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The only time you tell somebody is don't be afraid is when they are afraid, right? You don't have to tell somebody don't be afraid when they're not afraid. So he's terrified, right? 
How's he going to do this? How are the people, are they going to accept my leadership? God did all these amazing, miraculous things. So we get this story in Joshua. It says that Gilgal, Joshua set up 12 stones. Oh, that's interesting. Why did he set up 12 stones? Well, earlier we find that Joshua had this idea. What happened was when they came to the Jordan River, they started to walk across it. And as the story goes, the river stopped flowing. It just stopped flowing. And they walked across it safely. Now, this should sound a lot like the Red Sea parting. Because what's happening here is there's a validation of Joshua as the leader. And Joshua then gets this idea. And you know how people, like, they, you ever had that moment in your life where you feel like God is speaking to you? Anybody, like, brave enough to say that? Oh, I definitely have had moments where I feel like God is speaking to me. Anybody? And it comes to you, I think, the most, I don't want to say normal way, but I'll use that word. I, I, it's, it's probably not. The most common, let me say it that way. The most common way that we experience God speaking to us is through nudges. Like, we get an idea in our head, and it just, we have this sense that it's bigger than us, that it's God. And I think that's what happens in, in a lot of scripture. So when it says God says, I don't know why we wouldn't take it any differently than how we experience God today. Now, let me ask you this question. God ever, you ever feel like God is nudging you to do something and you do it and then you go, oh, I miss God on that one. Anybody? No? Okay, thank you, Rod. I appreciate you helping me out here, right? So we all have those experiences, right? So he gets this idea. It says God tells him, pick up the 12 rocks. Get 12 people, set them up. And so that's what they do. They set this up. It says, in the future, when your children ask their parents, what do these stones mean, right? So they would be walking around the Jordan River, and there's this big pile of 12 stones. What does this mean? You'll tell them, oh, this is where Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan in front of you until you crossed over, just as the Lord your God had done at the Red Sea, drying it up in front of us until we crossed over. And God did this in order that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So you see, Joshua used a pile of stones to remember God's power, to remember God's power. And that's the point of the story. It's not to, for us to historically be able to go back and say, did God, did this, did God not do that? We'll never know that. We'll never have any idea. The point of the story is there was this pile of rocks, and it was a reminder that God was powerful, that God brought us through it. God carried us along. And you tell that story. And I'm telling you what, if I was there that day, no matter what I saw, and it got passed down to me, I'd probably be exaggerating that sucker as much as I could. I'd be like, the fish was this big, right? So you get this beautiful story because you're trying to teach your children something, that God is power, that God is power. Okay, third stone. Are you with me? Do you need a stretch break, coffee break? All right, here we go. Third stone, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Uh, now, here, here's an interesting, this is another interesting story. The Israelites, the armies there, their arch enemies, the Philistines. Anytime you read, like, the Old Testament, you see the word Philistines show up, like, you should just hear the soundtrack in the background. Boo, right? They did not... There was no love loss for the Philistines and the Israelites, okay? Probably the other way around, too. The Philistines weren't big fans of the Israelites, right? Now, here's the thing. They're, they're getting ready, and they realize the Philistines are coming after us, and we are outnumbered. We're outnumbered. How are we going to do this? They didn't have, like, the Hamilton soundtrack playing in the background to inspire them. They're just like, we're done. It's over with. And so Samuel does what all of us do. Like he goes, he's like, I'm going to go pray. <laughs> I'm going to go pray, everybody. And I'm going to go offer God a sacrifice, see if I can't get God on our, get, make God happy. I mean, I'm being a reductionist, but he goes and he presents this offering, this sacrifice. And don't be judgy because you do it too. Like when something bad is going on in your life, I know you give an extra five bucks in the offering thinking, come on, God, help me out here. Help a brother out, right? You pray a little bit extra, right? We all do it. It's okay. No shame here. Remember, we're living in reality. 
So, so the Bible says that Samuel goes up and he's offering the burnt offering, right, to God. It says, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near for battle with Israel. And that day, however, the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Thereupon the Israelites, they rushed out from Mizpah and they pursued the Philistines, striking them down even beyond Bethkar. Now, you got to know your ancient geography for this to make any sense, right? And then probably don't. That's okay. But you just got to imagine the scene. And then it says that Samuel took a stone and he placed it between Mitzpah and Yafana, Yashana, excuse me. And he sets this stone there and he named it Ebenezer. Now the word Ebenezer means stone of help, stone of help. Six years of studying the Bible, I remember that one bit of Hebrew, stone of help, right? And he sets it there and this is what he says, as far as this place, the Lord has been our help. So what does he do? He sets up a stone to remind the people, hey, look back. And all the way from there to here, the Lord has been our help. And he was probably saying, if you go any further, I can't promise anything. <laughs> you know, like, this is the line right here, right? So Samuel used the stone to remember God's help. In a time where he felt overwhelmed, overpowered, and they saw God do something powerful. And so the story, the writer of Samuel, again, is giving us this stone image to say, remember that God is your help. Remember that. Remember that. And that's the power of the story. And you can remember that God is your help by attaching that reality to a beautiful story about God's help. Okay, are you ready? We're going to fast forward. We're going to fast forward now to the New Testament, to the Gospels. So the Gospels are four accounts of one Gospel. We call them the Gospels, but there's really only one Gospel, and we have four versions of it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is probably the most unique of the four versions, and it's probably, in my opinion, truly one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the history of the world. It, 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 the way that it takes the understanding of Jesus and puts it in these beautiful phrases from Jesus and experiences that Jesus has are so powerful. And one of the most memorable stories of Jesus is found in John chapter 8. Interestingly enough, in the earliest versions of John, this story isn't even in it. In the earliest manuscripts we have, this story isn't in it. But it's so good, somebody later on was like, we got to add this one. We can't leave it out, right? And so our final version of John, the later versions of John, has this story. And it's the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. So if you're not familiar with this story, there's a woman. She's caught in adultery. The religious leaders bring her to Jesus, throw her at Jesus' feet, and say, hey, we caught her. Our law says she should be stoned. They picked up stones to throw at her. What should we do? And the Bible says that Jesus kneels down. He starts writing in the ground, this big dramatic scene. Everybody's standing around with the stones in their hand. It says, when they continued to ask Jesus, Jesus straightened up and he says to them, let the one among you who's without sin throw a stone at her. What a beautiful stone. <laughs> and, and it says in verse 9 of chapter 8, and in response... They went away one by one, beginning with the elders. So he was left alone with the woman before him. I love it. You see, John, as he tells us this story, he uses a stone to remember mercy. To remind people, when you start to get judgy, <laughs> let's not forget everybody gets mercy. Let's not forget everybody has wounded Everybody has fallen short. Everybody. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care what, uh, what, where you were born. I don't care what your sexuality is. I don't care about any of that stuff. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God as revealed in this world. We've all done it. 
And so John uses this story, this very powerful story, to remind us of God's mercy. And that story is true. It's just true. It's real. And then the most beautiful, most amazing stone in the history of all stones is Mark. Mark chapter 16. And I choose Mark because Mark is probably our first version of the gospel, and Mark is used by Matthew and Luke. And so we really have one account of this, and Mark's stone is amazing. The most important stone in the Bible, in the history of the, of the planet for the Christian, is the stone that was rolled over the tomb of Jesus in the story in Mark. Jesus dies, and his body is given to a, a wealthy man who, who followed him, and, and it's put into this, you know, hewn-out grave almost in a cave, and, and, and then the stone is rolled over. And, and, you know, there are lots of faithful Christians that, that believe this story very literally as far as like being entombed like this. And there are a lot of faithful Christians that go, historically, there's no way Jesus would have ever been buried like that. But here's the beauty of the story. The stone. <laughs> it's, it, it, this story is put together for us so that we catch the beauty of it, the drama of it. And so whether you take it literally or whether you're here and you go, I can't take this, don't, don't get caught up. Let's end together in the meaning and the beauty of it. And so it, as it goes in Mark 16, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, they're, they're going to the tomb to anoint Jesus with spices because they expect Jesus to be there. And as they're going, this is what it says. It says, they were saying to one another, who will roll back the, say it with me, stone? Who will roll back the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. That's good stuff. Like, I don't care if you take that literally or figuratively, that's a good story that will change your life. That is truth, because there is no stone larger than death. And Jesus rolls back the stone every day in our lives. It's why Paul can talk about we were dead and now are alive. Nobody in this room has died. Nobody. <laughs> Yet for Paul, you did, and you're alive because there's power in the resurrection. And so Mark uses a stone to remember God's resurrection. And Mark calls his readers, his community, to never forget the power of the resurrection because that stone was very big. Now, here's the thing. All of these stories are meant to teach us something. They're not meant to teach us his history. They're meant to teach us wisdom and provide meaning and give us great, beautiful ways that we can remember the beauty of God. So don't miss this. To grow in optimism, to grow in mindfulness, to grow in gratitude, all these things, it begins with remembering well. And remembering well is these rocks that are set up to remember what? God's presence, to remember God's power, to remember God's help, to remember God's mercy, and to remember God's resurrection. That's what it's about. And we can have all kinds of fun talking about the stories and the history, but if we miss the meaning, we've missed it all. And if we can learn to remember well in, in the most difficult, darkest, wound-filled moments of our lives, happiness starts to emerge. So I want to encourage you to stack rocks in your everyday normal life. Stack rocks, build pillars, build monuments. And, and here's the thing. You do it, first of all, when you can't go back. Something happens in your life, and you go, life will never be the same. Now, that could be a positive event, or it could be a negative event. But you just know, I can't go back. My life has changed from here on out. I want to encourage you to stack rocks. That was me giving air quotes with my hands full. 
<laughs> Stack rocks. Now, listen, when you're in antiquity, you, you do with what you got. They didn't have refrigerators and magnets, right? They had rocks, so that's what they used. So if anything you know about me, I, I'm not a super literal guy. So don't take it. It's like you need to take home 20 rocks and go start putting rock piles all over your yard. No, but in your own way, as a family, figure out a way to mark those moments. Maybe there are magnets on a refrigerator that remind you of those things that say, I can't go back. And I would encourage you to stack rocks when you can't go back and stack those rocks when you know you need to remember and you need a reminder, that you need to remember what happened, remember that God is present, remember th this moment. I don't ever want to forget that. And you need a reminder about God, a reminder about God's power, right? And so that's the point, right? Genesis, the story of Jacob, is telling us something we should remember when we have a moment where we're afraid of the future, right? You go through that moment. You can't go back. I'm afraid of the future. Well, what does Genesis tell us? What is that rock that Jacob set up? It says, God is with me even when I don't feel it. God is with me even when I don't feel it. And what is it that Joshua is telling us? See, Joshua is saying you need reminders in your life. When you feel too weak for the task, you need to remind yourself of those moments so that you know that God is powerful enough to walk you through it. Just like God was powerful enough to walk the people across the Jordan. However that happened historically, God was powerful enough to walk the people through it. And we need to be reminded of that. Samuel, that rock is telling us something. Something that we need to be reminded of when we, we feel like the call, the task, whatever is ahead of us. Something is attacking us. We just feel it. And we know it's too big for us. And we feel a bit helpless. Samuel's rock is reminding us, God is my help when I feel helpless. That in this present moment, I can honor my helpless feeling. I can honor that space. But I can hold to and be reminded that God is my help. And John, you got to remember John's rock. John's rock is a reminder when judgment starts to creep in that God's mercy silences that judgment. Because there are going to be rocks in your life. There are going to be things that you can't ever go back from. And the truth of it is, it's because you wounded something. You wounded someone. And you go, I have to remember this moment. I have to know that God is there. And there's going to be these voices in your life that start to judge you. And you have to be reminded that mercy triumphs over judgment. And there's going to be those things in your world where you start to offer your own judgment towards other people's lives. And you need the reminder in your life to say, no, no, no. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy silences my judgmental attitude and spirit. And then, of course, Mark's rock. Mark's stone is telling us something that we have to remember when we're grieving. When we are facing the reality of the greatest enemy, death. And see, what Mark is saying to us is, don't forget that God's resurrection promises that my story isn't finished. That the story isn't finished. That death isn't the end of the story. And that's enough. That's enough. That death, and that brings me back to that hope-filled space in the midst of my grief that death isn't the end of my story. And I think this matters because the science tells us if we can start to think about the past, the present, and the future in healthy ways, if we can start to hold this kind of tension, we'll find strength. And here's what I think happens. I think what we're talking about is living our lives focused on what we'll call the goodness of God. 
See, the goodness of God is not God's ability to change your circumstance, God's ability to give you what you want, help you win the lottery, fix your car when it's broken down on the side of the road, right? That, that's not the goodness of God. The goodness of God is the power of God to walk us through. The goodness of God is the mercy of God to silence the voice. That's the, so that's all the goodness of God. So Viktor Frankl, I mentioned him at the beginning. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote this book in nine days. This book in 1991 was called the second most important book in the 20th century. He wrote it in nine days. I feel like it might be inspired. <laughs> I would encourage you if you're a book, if you read books, if you like books, that read this book. It's really powerful. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, this is what he says. Now remember his life. Remember what he's been through. He says, again and again, I admonish my students in both Europe and in America, don't aim at success. In other words, don't make your goal to be successful. I want to be successful. Don't do that. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. Jesus would say something like this. Don't try and hold on to your life. The more you hold on to your life, you're not going to get it. You got to lose your life to find it, right? Now he's talking about success, but he goes on and says, for success, like happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. In other words, it flows out of, and it only does this as an unintended side effect of one's dedication, I love this, to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. There are so many applications to that little statement. It's divine in my opinion. And at the big meta level, the heart of Christianity is dedicating our lives to a cause greater than ourselves, and surrendering ourselves to a person other than ourselves. I mean, that's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. And happiness emerges when we focus on the goodness of God. Not when we try to get all our circumstances right, not when we try and do this, but when we focus on the goodness of God in our past, our present, and our future. And he says, therefore, happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. You have to give up your life to find it. That's the great mystery. So happiness truly does emerge when we pursue the goodness of God. We pursue the goodness, and that's by remembering well. So today I hope that you hear God inviting you to remember well. And here's how we're going to finish up today. We're going to finish up with a little exercise. For those of you that are tuning in online, for those of you in the room, we can all participate. So we have these rocks here in the front, and we have this center monument of rocks. The red rocks, there's 249 of those rocks. And today, those 249 rocks represent the 249 people who have died with COVID in Larimer County. And we wanted to pause, and we wanted to hold that pain together. We wanted to live in the moment that life has changed for 249 families, and it will never be the same. And you can't go back from that. And then we have these other rocks here, and we have Sharpies. And so what we're going to do during this song is invite everybody to come forward and to take one of these rocks and write that thing, that moment, that person, that time, that experience that you can't go back from, that you don't want to forget, that you need a reminder of the goodness of God in the midst of it. And we want to encourage you to write that on that rock and then add it to the memorial here in the center of the room. And if you know someone, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a relative, just you know a name of someone who's died of COVID this year, we encourage you to write their name on a red rock. doesn't matter whether they were in Larimer County or not. That, that's not important. And we just would encourage you to write their name. There's Sharpies around there as well. And then you take that rock and add it to the pile. 
If you're online, in the comment section, just write what you'd like written on the rock. And if you want it written on a red rock, if it's a name of a person, just put red rock and then put what it is, and then put a gray rock, and then write what you'd like. And then we have people that are monitoring those comments, and they'll add it to our memorial here. And we're going to keep this up for this series because it's a powerful reminder that happiness is not toxic positivity. The happiness is not glossing over the pain and the wounds and the hurt in this life. Because if we gloss over it, we miss the redemptive beauty of the, of the true gospel. We miss it. And I love, I love, I love, I love what our call to wisdom, our call to worship said this morning. That we're not afraid of your pain here. We're not afraid of it. Because one of the most beautiful things that God does is he turns, he turns our ashes into beauty. Like it's just amazing what the Spirit of God can do. And it makes no sense, but it is this amazing power and beauty of God if we'll surrender to it. If we'll surrender to it. So will you do me a favor, if you, if you would, would you stand? And as we sing this song, we just invite you to come, and then I have a blessing for us to get us out of here after.